July 2nd, 2023. This morning's class is donated in loving memory of Joseph Boganum, Yosef Ben Rivka by Eli and Fanny Boganum and family. I'd like to this morning uh, continue in a series that over the course of several summers we've been developing. We called the series The Truths of Halakha. Uh, this specific class would be focused, will be focused on one particular and specific halakha or halakhot that were in my uh, own personal history quite relevant to me as we'll discuss in a moment or two. Uh, but at the same time, touch upon, as time went on, I appreciate and understood the significance of the halakha on conceptual issues, on the issues of the truths of halakha. Now, before we start with the halakha and really get into the depths of that, I would uh, mention at the onset that the truths of halakha, to talk about more than one truth, of course, needs to begin as the series did and as we invariably, uh, inevitably uh, come back to its source number eight, the Gemara in Masechet Eruvin. The Gemara in Masechet Eruvin has the famous statement that three years there was a mahlok and a dispute between Beit Shammai and Beit Hillel until a heavenly voice, a batkol, descended from above and declared, Elu va'elu divre Elohim hayim. Both of these and those are the words of the living God, both Beit Shammai and Beit Hillel, both the ones who say Asur and those who say Mutar. But halakha kebet the halakha will be followed or should be followed according to the opinion of bet Already that statement is a bit jarring. If you think about it in our normal lives, to understand and to accept that both mutar and asur are, permit, are, are true is difficult to wrap your head around. That's, of course, where the name of the class uh, derives from, the truths of halakha. When it comes to halakha, there are, and needs to be parsed out carefully, more than one truth. We accept two truths or more as being reality, as being in play. And we've, over the course of time, in these classes and others, tried to understand, well, what does that mean to us, first and foremost, conceptually, but secondly, practically. So here's the particular for this class, and of course, we'll lead ourselves back to that Gemara in Eruvin and Dafyot Gimal. I remember it vividly. It was one of the first Motzei Shabbat classes that I went to of Hacham Ovadia Yosef. He used to teach class in, uh, in Kenis Yazdim, was the name of the synagogue. It was in Shkunat Abukharim in Yerushalayim. And one of my friends, good friends at the time, Yair El Nadav, told me I have to go to his classes, his shi'urim on Saturday night just for the scene. Behold, see what Hacham Ovadia Yosef does. See how he's able to speak to a large portion, a large amount of people of all stripes and colors. How he's entertaining, not so much for his novel insights in these classes, but look at the scene, come and be a part of it. And so I did. And one of the first classes, I remember it vividly because it jarred me at the time, not only with regards to how exciting it was hearing him say it, but with regards to the practical ramifications for myself. Because he talked about the status of wine. What do I mean by the status of wine? Now, don't go there in your mind. I'm not talking about non-Jews touching the wine or anything of that sort. I'm talking about wine that's diluted, and all wine that we have today is in some way or fashion diluted. And what he stated in the class, and we'll get to it in very quick time, um, is uh, he said that wines in today's day and age, thank you, Eli, uh, not only the donation of the class, but the donation of the coffee as well. Fantastic, rolling. Uh, we need a Mishiberach after the class over this. Um, so what he said in the class is that wines are diluted to the extent that, and we'll get into the details in a moment, for Ashkenazim, the wines that are sold in Israel, he said, they can say, Borepri Hagefin, 
for Svaradim, you cannot and should not be saying Borei Priya on the vast majority of wines that are sold. They're over-diluted. That's what he said. He, in the class as well, told the story. He transcribed it years beforehand. I discovered afterwards in his book, Hazon Ovadia, how he was once Mesader Kiddushin. He was officiating at a wedding, and they handed him wine, which he knew right away was not, quote, from the Sephardic kosher wine. And as a result, no Bore Priyagefin was to be said on it. It was over-diluted. Shakol Niyabidvaro was the best he was going to do. But he was officiating. They handed him the glass of wine, or I guess he called it water wine, and he began and he did a, he had a scene and I used to that at a chupa he said that then and he writes it and he says Ham Yehuda Sadka who was one, formerly the head rabbi in Porat Yosef was there as well he began the next Bore Priya Gefin and what we call the Sheva Berachot afterwards he followed Hacham Ovadia so he too picked it up and said Shehakol Nihiyabidvaro and there was a whole scene so I remember it vividly I remember that in the crowd, and this would happen from time to time, someone, uh, t- someone chirped up from the crowd. Someone asked, so which wines are okay? And he said that many of them, most of them are not okay. So he said, I'll tell you this much. Anything that has hashkahat bet Yosef on it is kosher. That's his son's hashkaha. So I remember it was, it was a scene in and of itself like that. He wasn't committing to anything else. But then, and here's the critical part, at least for our purposes today, I walked away from the class and gave it a little bit of time to settle in my mind, and I realized I'm studying, and it's, uh, for some of you might say, for me, it's my pride and legacy and uh, heritage. I was studying in an Ashkenazic yeshiva. The wine that was used for Kiddush and Havdalah in the yeshiva was not with Hashkahat Bet Yosef. If accepting the rabbi's claim and understanding of the halachas for Svaradim, we should not, I say we, Svaradim, be saying Bore Priya Gefin, was I not fulfilling the mitzvah of Kiddush every Friday night and Shabbat morning and Havdalah Motzei Shabbat because they were using the wines which were not okayed by the Sephardic poskim. Is that the halacha? So I did a little bit of digging at the time as well. I looked into it a little bit more. I was nervous about this. I said, I was at the class. I heard him say it. I wasn't familiar with his tishuban, this matter at the time. Looked into it a little bit more. May have even asked one of his sons. I don't remember. I used to pray from time to time with Rabbi Yaakov Yosef. And I asked him, I don't remember. But what I remember is that I got the answer that it's okay. And you're... Didn't fully develop and understand the reasoning. That took a little bit more time. Didn't further appreciate the philosophical implications of such a notion. That's what I'd like to uh, lay forth for you uh, this morning. So that's, that's the game plan. Again, the larger picture is this truths of halacha somehow, and you could already kind of figure out where we're going with this, Faradim, Ashkenazim, different visions, can we interact with one another, they believe one thing, we believe something, that's the truths of halacha will come from there, but in order to get there, we have to start with, where does this all begin? What is the definition of wine? That I say, Bore Priya on. So it starts, for all intents and purposes, in source number one, it's Shohan Aruch, I made a mistake, I, I wrote, Siman Resh Ayin it's not Siman Resh Ayin it's Siman Resh Dalit, Sa'if He, it says Shohan Aruch, Initially, citing from earlier authorities and Gemarot, Shimare Yain Mevarech Alehem Bore Piri Hagefin. The Shimarim, if I'm not mistaken in English, you would translate as Lee 
lees, L-E-E-S, of wine, which if I'm not mistaken as well, is that overly saturated stuff that doesn't go into the regular wine that we drink. And as a result, you would want to or need to dilute it uh, on those as well, even though it's not regular wine, you say, maybe sediments. If you uh, put water as and mixed it in, if you entered three portions commensurate or, or, or parallel to the one of shimare yayin, in other words, you have three water to every particle of shimre yayin, as long as the percentage is that it's no more than three quarters water in terms of diluting, you say it maintained its status as wine. What if the wine amount is less than 25%? Even though it tastes like again, the, the, the technicalities for our purposes, not necessary right now. Even though it tastes like wine, it's not considered wine, it's considered something else, and you say shahakol. Continue Shohan Aruch. This measurement of three quarters and one quarter, this was once upon a time. The wines which were produced in ways that were stronger and more potent with regards to the taste of the wine. This is Rabbi Yosef Karo writing under 500 years ago. The wine that we produce today, are no longer that strong. Even if you have a quarter of water, to, excuse me, a quarter of wine to the three quarters of water, you should not be saying you need a higher percentage of wine because through the production and process of our wine today, it's less potent in terms of taste. I didn't really leave us with, so what is the measurement? How do you determine it? Based on the place where they dilute, and you'll have to figure this out accordingly. Again, Shohan Aruch didn't really define for us. He did tell us a quarter of wine to three quarters of water is not, so it's not enough. It didn't really help us all that much in terms of actually defining. Yes, Victor? It'll have the same exact question. It'll be a question of what the, what the percentages are. Is it not watered down wine? No, no, no certainly not, no. Says Rama, no, we'll talk about it. Uh, Mr. Salama will help you afterwards. Ubilvad says Rama, Shelo yehe hayayin ehad but, oh, maybe this is why Victor had me doing this. There's a class on recording about grape juice in which I describe it and the halachot is connected to it. So please make certain to listen, Victor. Today they do nuts. No, by extension, by extension, Hacham Vadya and other poskim will say it's anything else, any preservatives, anything that's not wine. Yes, yes, that will be clear already, somewhat clear. Says Rama, Ironically, the Rama is more lenient, not more stringent today. It says at the very least you have not more or not less than one sixth. What's that? Sixteen point six six seven percent. Looked it up beforehand. Could have just asked my son. But anyway, that's what he dealing with for Ashkenazim. Rama gave us the percentage. It should be 17% wine. Oh, that's that's lean, on the lenient end of matters. How do we interpret Shulchan Aruch? Again, I'm skipping the technical legwork, although we'll do some others. Uh, the poskim, the later authorities in interpreting the words of Shulchan Aruch suggest, by and large, there should be more than 50% 
of wine. That's how it should work. You should have either exactly 50, but they suggest or even demand that there be more than 50% of wine, which means to say the Bet Yosef, Hashgachav, Chacham Vadya Yosef's son, were are makpid, they're careful to make certain that there's always more than 50-51% wine to water or to anything else in the wine mixture. What constitutes wine? Derived from grapes. That's it. That's it. Yes, the answer apparently is yes, and they won't. Again, I'm, dep- I'm basing myself, this is where David Salam will get angry. I mean, I'm basing myself on rabbinic uh, testimonies. But what Hacham Vadya Yosef will write about is how all wine bottles are produced and, vi- and visited vineyards and so forth with a dilution has to be under most circumstances unless they tell you it's all natural or something along those lines and they generally speaking if not always won't tell you to what extent so you are not only basing yourself on, on common sense but furthermore on the hashkaha you're assuming that they did their research and did they do so to speak a sephardic or an Ashkenazic research? Uh, that's the type of question. Just a few minutes ago, we were talking about something else. We are talking about restaurants in Brooklyn. By and large, if not always, have an Ashkenazic Hashkaha. Does that, should that pose problems, questions for us? So everyone in the room probably rest assured uh, that Rani, the Ashkenazim have all the homrot. We're probably okay. Not always. This is an example. That's right. That, but this is an example of where not always. And as a result, this was and is for many an issue that arose and arises with regards to the wines. So Hakam of Adya Yosef wrote about this to the best of my knowledge for the first time in his She'elotu Tishubot Hazon Ovadya. Hazon Ovadya was one of his earlier writings. It was on the Halachot of Pesach. He wrote two uh, two volumes called Hazon Ovadia. This is in Siman Vav. Uh, just recently, I was in a used bookstore in which they had. Well, this is a plug for him. It was in Mizrahi used books. He has many of the Kitveyad of Chacham Vadia Yosef for Hazon Ovadia. So you see the way he actually wrote each one of these two. Somehow they're in great conditions. Though. I mean, this book is 50 plus years ago. But anyway, I, I didn't see this particular tissue, but since it's on Hilchot Pesach, the first many tishubot are about wine because we start the Leil Pesach, Leil Seder with Kadesh. And as a result, he deals with many of these laws. So here in this, pa- in this long footnote, which is in Siman Vav, uh, maybe on pay, uh, page P in She'elot Tishbot Hazon at least in the old edition. Uh, so he says the following, we're going to read portions of it. The halakha we kind of got across. Uh, he's speaking, he's uh, narrating, he's telling, telling a little bit of a narrative about things that took place. You'll understand to what extent we've discussed in different contexts how Chacham Vadi Yosef went to war on certain issues where he felt Svaradim were being diminished or put down. Uh, so this was one of them. Not so, not as much as women's lighting the candles. Make, uh, making the beracha before lighting them. Not as much as, I don't know, halak, glat bet Yosef. There are certain issues which he was really, really passionate about. But this was one, as I said, on a Saturday night class. I remember him making a whole class out of it. Midet daberi in source number two. It says, as I'm talking about this, he writes this in a footnote, asapera v'yirvahli, there's an alliteration over there, but anyway, he says, I'm going to write, and this will... This will give us some space, give me the ability to space myself out and speak my mind. He says, it's over 30 years ago. A faithful 
God-fearing individual who would come to my classes approached me. After he heard in the class the details that we just discussed and he articulated in the class that for Svaradim you need the 51% wine. We can no longer go the one and three, the one quarter and three quarters. This individual told me, He's a manager of a vineyard in Jerusalem. You have to understand that for Americans, it might not catch your, your eye as quickly. Badat stands for Betin Sedek. When you're dealing with Kashrut in America, we talk about OU and Kafke. In America, in, Kafke, in, America, in, in Israel, you talk about Badat. Badat is, to a certain extent, the gold standard of Kashrut. Oftentimes, they're different. Today's day and age, there are a lot of badats. You have questions. Well, it's gold, but it's blue label or it's red. You, know, you have that type of question. But badat has a shim davar. Generally speaking, it means this is going to be the stringent and highest level kashrut. So here's an individual who was working at a vineyard and it had the hashkahad, had the supervision of badats. The al kol bakbuk yain shelo on every bottle of wine that he produced. There was a marking that it's kosher according to the badat. And this individual approached me. He knew, based on his involvement, that the wine um, saturation or the wine percentage was 17%. Perfect for Ashkenazim. Ashkenazim needs 16.667. They need one to every, set, every six. Uh, so he knew that that was the reality. Usha'ar and the rest of it, who ta'arovichilmaim, it was water, im sukar with sugar, seva ma'achal, food coloring, homer meshamer, preservatives, kayotze beze, umidivarav hevanti, and I understood from his words, shemakbidim hem latseti dehovat haramash, ye ayayin ehad mishashamin amayim hamuravimbo, they were scrupulous and careful. It's not as if they were not diligent and they were careless. Careful, and they made certain, one to every six. One seventh was going to be. Wine. And they moved their eyes away from caring about a, a Sephardic approach. Hazot. He says, I was very angered by this. Ki Rabbim, this is Hacham Vadya speaking, because many Mehasfaradim, the Aidota Mizrach, Somchim, Letumatam Al Hotemeta Badats. They uh, assume the Badats is a kosher wine. The Hosham Shazio Ayayin Hayotir Kasher, Afla Mehadrin, as I mentioned earlier. It's Badats, Badats is going to be a very high Kashrut, only think twice about it. Vilu Ata, but now Mit Barer Shibirkat Bore Priagef and Al Ayayin Hazeh. They caused a stumbling block for us. They misled us, the Svaradim. And he continues and he says, I said publicly, It's prohibited to make a berachan. That wine, He continues. The story continues. Yes, Amen. <laughs> Wonderful question. No, really, especially because I set it up with my story at the beginning. At the time of his writing this, there was no Bet Yosef. The thought, unfortunately, crossed my mind as well, but thankfully I was able to resolve it and know there was no Badat Bet Yosef at the time that this was written. To, 
listen, unless you tell me, because he does tell you the one wine company's okay with, unless you do your research and say he had a stock or he was getting something from it. No, I think this was really... He says, says, one individual who heard that I was angry about this, speaking against it, went to a rabbi who was a part of the Badatz, the Betin Sedek, Shim Zeb Hemet, uh, why do they allow for the Svaradim to be misled? He responded, look at the marking on the bottles. Second paragraph, third line. He said, I'm not misleading anyone. I wrote, it's kosher for Ashkenazim. You know, something, along, something along the lines of, in today's day and age, on Pesach, you'll find in Israel, kasher le'ochle kotniot. If someone eats from kotniot on Pesach, so they'll write that on it. That's a suggestion. Chambad Yosef is not very happy about this. He says people don't pay attention to it. People don't look at the fine print. And Furthermore, and I think he felt a little bit put down. We don't care about that. We're not in charge of the Svaradim. I was very surprised by this answer. I didn't hear it from Rabbi Young Rice, he says, but could he actually say that? I was never fully certain that this was actually the reality. He's admitting to the reality and just saying... Oh, we don't need to care about it. Although those words, apparently it's never or wasn't it's displayed on the bottle exactly what the uh, percentages were. Considering all the other things, he says the truth is there are even many Ashkenazic poskim who agree as well there should be 50, 51%. And so forth, so he says, I couldn't and won't accept such an answer. He goes on in the ellipsis to quote Gemarot where you have to be very careful if you're giving a Pesach for one and not for another to designate that and make that clear or maybe uh, even shy away from it. He continues in his uh, analysis of what took place. He says, and then the head of the Badatz in Eretz Yisrael became a rabbi, Zichrono Livracha, Rabbi Yitzhak Weiss. He says, and I heard at the time that Rabbi Yitzhak Weiss came into, into power, and again, it's interesting, he, didn't, he doesn't report any conversations he had with them. He's just reporting what he heard here and what he heard there. He says, when he came into uh, leading the helm of the Badatz, they went up in percentages from 16, 17 to 20%. Says Chamvadia Yosef, not enough at all. Far off from enough. Lachen himlatsti, the second to last paragraph. Lechol shomeel likhi beshiure Torah she ishmati berabim bechol rechve haaretz. Shelo lekadesh lavdil ulevarech bore preagefen. Don't say kiddush avdala bore preagefen. Ela aliyin shel yikve Carmel hamizrachi. Only from Carmel Hamizrahi, if anyone has, has stock in it. So you probably were helped a lot in the past by this Pesach Halacha. That was his Pesach. He says, only that wine. Now he's not saying all others are not okay. He's saying, I don't know about all others. But he is saying, how does he know this one's kosher? How does he know that? He says, the Mashkiach told me that they have the right percentages. Many of the great rabbis depended on that. And then in the brackets at the end, he tells the story that I mentioned at the uh, at, at the Sheva uh, Berachot at the wedding, 
And lastly, he concludes, as he could on many of his strong positions, Hine le'at le'at, over the course of time, slowly but surely, nitparsemu ha'devarim hanal b'meshech hashanim, my words became more famous, more well-known, v'nichnesa toda'a zo bekal adat Yisrael, shalol l'kadesh, l'avdil v'arech bore pre'agefen, ala al-yayin amiti, v'lo al-yayin ha'mezuyaf hanal, everybody realized we only make bore pre'agefen on real wine, not fake wine, he says, after that time, it wasn't only just Carmel Mizrahi or whatever the name, Yikve Carmel Mizrahi. There were other vineyards. He doesn't tell you their names. Again, in the class, he told us what to look for. Anyway, that's, what, that's, that's the Teshubah. So again, that's the backdrop for what I want to address in the, in the second part of this class. And that is, well, except Accepting that as a reality, accepting that you know that this bottle of wine has 20% uh, wine uh, and uh, 80% other things, and an Ashkenazi without a problem can say Bore Priyagefen, and I want to hear the Kiddush from that Ashkenazi, assuming that was the reality for me in Yeshiva, but even if it wasn't, let's talk about it. If it is a reality, is that okay? For me, it's not Bore Priyagefen. For him, well, it is, but what about for me, for him? Can he do something for me? Now, before I go onward, just to quickly point out in sources three and four, uh, source three is from Rabbi Moshe Sternbach, who stands at the head until today, if I'm not mistaken, of the Eda Haredit, the Badatz Eda Haredit in, in, in Yerushalayim, in Israel. Uh, he makes a, he, he got a letter about this matter in Chilakimal, he records it, and he says, you should know all your information is false and wrong and untrue, and we are very careful in all of our wines to be over 50%, because we care a lot about the Sfaradim. Has v'shalom, would we ever put them down and not care about them? Any and all of our wines are produced for everyone. They're kosher for Ashkenazim and, and Sfaradim. In source four, Rabbi Yaakov Chaim Sofer, who's a Sfaradi, strong Sfaradi living in Jerusalem today. He as well says, I looked into this matter. That information is old information or never true and relevant. Again, that's just with regards to the real practical. But for us, I'd really like to address if you know that it's otherwise or if it once was otherwise. Yes, Abby? Can I point out that uh, in, uh, in certain countries, in Europe, for example, all the, it's, uh, it's not uh, uh, allowed to order wine. So I think we're talking about this very specific reality. You mean America or Fantastic. Israel? So Avi is making clear to us, you're rarely, like these tissue boats say, you're rarely, if ever, today going to find one that's diluted to that extent. I'll accept. What about the amount of water? If you drink three times the amount. Doesn't matter because you're not drinking wine. You're drinking water. Flavored water. But ultimately speaking, each sip was not wine. Each sip, you know, that's a good question. Yes, Josh? Well, how Abeno? Does, uh, from concentrate for It will be, it would and, and should be the same question to the best of my knowledge. You'll have to figure out exactly what the percentage points are on this. So there's a good uh, historical case of Pokemon, Musar, and Marcy, but you have like six months trying to figure out Pedum like and? Uh-huh. Okay. Josh is leaving us on the uh, edge of our chairs, telling us that maybe the grape juice that we use this Shabbat is un not okay, but he doesn't remember. All right, fantastic. All right, but now, uh, moving this a step forward, moving this just a step, yes? We're in the late 20th century. Instead of depending on Mashgiach, 
dependent on the laboratory. We have chemists. We, by definition, wine is. A hundred percent. Mr. Salam, no question. Not, not 100%. And, and go do it and determine it. And if it's kosher, it's kosher. If it has 50%, it has 50%. There's no questioning that. The issue is that Hacham Vadya has with putting the marking on it. The issue is that people should be either getting the right marking or going to the laboratory. Uh, no, there's, no, there's no question in this respect. My question... Three percent alcohol, one percent alcohol. Well, it's not an issue per se of alcohol. The issue over here is with no, regards. By definition, no. by definition, grape juice turns to wine when it when you yes. add yeast to it and it turns alcohol. And it ferments. Yes. Okay. That's the definition of wine. Understood. So, therefore, what? Therefore, go from the definition to the chemistry right away. But the issue over here is not about how much alcohol there is. The issue over here is how much. Source from grapes is there as opposed to other things. So again, so you so you make the point as does obvious. Okay, so it means if the reality has changed, if the reality never was so. All right, we'll have to allow that all to be. We'll get, but we'll hear from Josh about to, from concentrate the kedem. But for our purposes, I, I, I need to move past the, the reality on this and the specifics in that respect. I leave it to everyone to determine. I'm sorry, I'm not giving you a strict bottom line because I imagine it depends on each one of the companies, even today. So do the experiments, look into it, make the phone calls, etc. And it's all important. I imagine, as Avi says, I do imagine that by and large the hashkahat today is different. I think Hacham Vadei Yosef did make a strong enough mark. Maybe laws did as well. Regardless, I want to know, you're in a circumstance, let's call it completely theoretical then, because I was in yeshiva some 25 years ago, so if everyone tells me it wasn't relevant then, so he was just, the rabbi was just making me nervous then. But, assuming it wasn't just making me nervous, assuming this was the reality, Kodei Svaradi, here Kiddush, from Ashkenazi, who's using wine, which is under the percentage amount for the Svaradi, and fulfill it. So this question, in source number five, in Sheilot Tushibot, Ateret Paz, in Helek Aleph, in Siman Yodalit, it's a rabbi's contemporary rabbi, Rabbi Pinhas Zavihi. Uh, in his Shailot Tishubot, there's a long footnote addressing this issue. At the very end, he says, and by the way, I heard that this question was asked to Hacham Vadya Yosef, and he said, it's okay. Even though for the Sfaradi, he's drinking afterwards or being involved with, uh, I don't know, grape uh, beverage, grape, grape soda, right? In other words, ultimately, uh, for the Ashkenazi, it was wine and it's sufficient. Now, the logic was left out, at least apparently in the way that that went down. Hacham Ovadia Yosef's son, the current chief rabbi in source number seven in Yalkut Yosef reports this from his father as well. His father's position apparently, as his son heard from him, was that if a Svaradi, as I was in an Ashkenazic yeshiva, it's exactly the context they paint, as I recall, thinking it myself, maybe I, I doubt it, but I was gonna say maybe I inspired the question, I don't think that's the reality, but anyway, I'm sure there's hundreds, if not thousands who had this type of issue. Um, the question was, can they fulfill it? Apparently, Chacham Vadya Yosef said yes. 
Now, he didn't apparently write about it. We don't know his exact rationale, but there was a suggestion with regards to his rationale, which for me is very interesting. His son suggests this, and his son admits the fact that he's, he's stealing it or he's borrowing it from that she'elot teshubot ateret pas. So uh, just to bring you forward in the class, we're up to stage two in the class until we get to the last stage in the class. So stage one was just with regards to wine status, understanding the difference between Sfaradim and Ashkenazim. Stage two is determined well, could a Svaradi hear from an Ashkenazi? Our answer is yes. Now we're going to try to figure out why. Stage three will be, well, what are the uh, ramifications? How does that tell us something about how the nature of halakha, these truths of halakha, actually uh, dictate and determine things for us? It's not just theoretical, it's something more practical. So it goes like this. The suggestion is, uh, source number six, in the book Mikra'e Kodesh. Mikra'e Kodesh is a book that was uh, taken from notes of the former chief rabbi of Jerusalem, by Tzvi Pesach Frank, in uh, his book on Purim, in Siman Yod Gimal, he makes the following analysis, or he sets forth the following analysis. He first quotes from the Ragachavar Rebbe. The Ragachavar Rebbe, his name was Rabbi Yosef Rosen. We talked about him last summer, maybe two summers ago. We had a whole class on him. We called it the limits of genius, you might recall, uh, for those who were there or listened to it. But regardless, apparently, what's said in his name is the following, and we'll try to understand the significance. When it comes to reading the Migilah and Purim, I know it sounds like it is. We're going from one thing to the next, but listen to it carefully for a moment or two. When when you come to the ten sons of Haman who were hanged, the Gemara says, and in turn Shulchan Aruch is posek lahalakha this way, they need to be read benishima ahat, in one breath. If you've ever noticed, if you read the Megillah yourself, you stop for a second, you get your breath, and then you read them all really quickly. Nishima Ahat, that's how we're supposed to do it. According to a certain tradition, many communities, apparently, maybe until today, although they were listening to the Megillah being read by someone else, when it came to that part, they would all read it by themselves. And so the Ragachavar, the Safinat Pa'aneach, suggested the reasoning as follows. He says, I can fulfill, listen carefully to the point, I can fulfill my mitzvah of hearing and reading the Megillah by just listening carefully to the words. Then it's as if I said them, but not as if I said them in the fashion that they're being said by the person who's saying them. So, although all those words, quote, it's as if I said them, physically, to go beyond that, to have the necessities which are greater than just having the words checked off next to my name, that far we don't go in this principle known as Shomea Ka'one. Another example, there's a mahlokin amongst the Aharonim which goes as follows, Mikra'e Kodesh sites. What about the following situation? You have lo'aleinu, a person who's blind. Can they get an aliyah? In order to read from the Sefer Torah, you need to be reading it from the text. Can they get an aliyah? Well, they can't read from the text, but they're not going to read from the text. They're going to make the berachot, and then they're going to listen to the person who's reading from the sefer who can read from the text. Can they link into his reading, and it becomes as if they're him? Or alternatively, are they just as if the words were said, but they're not reading it from the text? Do you understand? In each of these situations, there's something more than just saying the words. They're saying the words all in one breath, do we go that far? I'm really like that guy? Or am I reading it from the text? Am I really like that guy? There's one other famous example he brings as well. Uh, uh, Victor can do this one, Bihidur, I noted on Shabbat. If you have a good voice as a Kohen, you're in good shape because Berkat Kohanim is supposed to be done Bekol Ram. That's how the Gemara is Doresh from the Pesukim. It's supposed to be done out loud. Can I fulfill, my voice is hurting me, if I was a Kohen, I'll just stand next to a Kohen and fulfill Birkat Kohanim Shomea Ka'one. Is that effective or not? Well, it's the same issue. On the one hand, it's as if I said the words. 
On the other hand, were the words said, quote unquote, by me out loud through that man? That's the question. So there's a large and long and broad spanning debate about this issue. How expansive are we in understanding that I link into you when you do something? Is it literally like you? And therefore, if you said it all in one breath, that's the way the Syrians certainly do it. I don't read the, the ten sons on my own. It's as if I read them in, in one breath. Um, by extension, can a blind person get an aliyah? It's as if he's reading it from the text. By extension, if my voice is hurting me, can I, and I'm a Kohen, can I just listen to Victor and fulfill it in that fashion? Those are all important questions. The suggestion of Rabbi Zavihi goes as follows. He suggests that when it comes to this issue, our issue of the Ashkenazi making the Borepria Gefen, one sec, saying Borepria Gefen, am I stepping into his body as he makes the Borepria Gefen, or are his words just affecting me? If his words are just affecting me, so it's me and versus him, and for me it's not a, it's not a kosher wine to say Borepria Gefen. If I'm stepping into his body, it's as if I'm reading the Torah through him. It's as if I'm holding the wine and I'm him. In that circumstance, the suggestion is that's why Hacham Vadia Yosef said it's permitted. Go, had Gomel, the same type of issue arise, arises as well. Yes, because it needs to be done out loud. Not exactly the same issue, because we're talking about That's a question of saying amen to someone's beracha when they're not mechuyah. But, right. but, but, but it's related to our conversation. That's a very dangerous law, because a person who is blind permanently is one half maybe, but a person who is temporarily blind has an operation is one thing. Most I'll make sure you're invited when we do a full class on that. I'm talking about it conceptually now. I'm talking about it not in terms of halakha ma'asish, as a matter of fact, this posik, question how we follow this, that a blind person can't get an aliyah. I've been present more than once when they do. No, but, but the principle is... But the, that becomes a problem in that most people are not allowed to go up together. No, 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 because it's not that it's impossible for them to be reading it. For the blind person, he's not capable of seeing it from the text. But, but again, the principle then goes, Shomea Ka'one, the question and the suggestion is, in Shomea Ka'one, it's as if I am that person, so to speak, and in turn, I fulfill the Kiddush, the Bore Priya Gefen, because as an Ashkenazi, who I am half, but I'm not fully. My primary function in life is Svaradi. So linking into Rani, I'm, I'm stepping into his body as he says the Kiddush for me. And I'm sorry, Rani. I, I, I'll do your son-in-law if you want. Right? I was like, linking into Rani for a moment. I, 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 or linking into my, my grandfather, my Zaydi, or my uncle, etc. So effectively what I'm doing is I'm stepping into them. So pause for a second and just realize what happened over here. We took potentially a tremendous jump forward. Because whereas, whereas, when the blind person goes up for the aliyah, the person who's reading from the sefer could see. And if the blind person could see, that would be a kosher reading. Whereas, when the person who's reading it, hat in one breath, I listening to him could do so as well. In each of these circumstances, I'm linking into what they're doing, even if I maybe can't do it. Over here by the wine, it's an altogether different reality. Over here by the wine, he's not, in my world, making a beracha on wine. 
He's making beracha on juice. He's making beracha on soda. As a result, even if I'm stepping into his body, even if, I know, he's got more hair than me, I became Ronnie for a moment, he not, he's making kiddush as me on shehakol niyabitvaro beverage. As a result, there's an additional novelty over here. It has now gone above and beyond anything we've noticed and realized in the past because we're suggesting that a Svaradi somehow can link into with an Ashkenazi and obviously vice versa, even though in principle their position according to Halakha is altogether different. That is not wine that you're holding or that I am virtually holding in my realm of halacha. And yet, the suggestion is I could fulfill the beracha bore priyagefin through you. So with that, we make our way, hopefully, to the last segment of the class, and that's where we make this suggestion about the truths of halacha. And it goes as follows in order to make this point clearly that as Beit Shammai and as Beit Hillel made their claims, one mutar and the other asur, they did not and would not negate the other opinion. The suggestion of the Gemara is that there was a certain truth inherent in both positions. Although I'm saying asur and you're saying mutar, you're saying mutar is true for me, although I won't act based upon that. That's an amazing thing to the extent that as you're holding that beverage in your hand and saying Bore Priya Gefen, I say that's true. So you say to me, Faddal, you say Bore Priya Gefen, I can't do so. But then how are you saying Bore Priya Gefen? How am I linking into it? It means that somehow, somehow we found a reality, we may found the middle ground over here where halacha is being transformed from a concrete application of one truth. For me, there's only a single truth. No, for me, there's one operative truth. For me, there's only one way in which I'll act. I'll go halacha kebetilil. That's not negating that what you do, provided that you have ample sourcing, provided that's your tradition, I can appreciate it and even fulfill through you at times. That's an amazing thing. Just to articulate a little bit more, if you look at the last source of all, the entire thing, Interesting point over there, but reminder that over there, the halakha became so for you. Over here, I walk out of your house, I turn to the side, I can't, so it's even more, you understand what I'm saying? But yes, it's along those lines. In the last source, and we'll articulate it perhaps best from this, in an article by uh, Rabbi Aaron Lichtenstein, where he's talking about this concept, it's, a, it's an article called Torah Chesed and Torah Temet, right, proof text and methodological considerations aside. He had gone through many of the sources, uh, some of which are on our source sheet and others in terms of Elu Elu Divrelim Chaim, the truths of halakha. He writes, I find a pluralistic view of halakha compelling from a moral standpoint. But listen to what he means by that. Giving a purely monistic perspective, and it was monistic for meaning one, like monotheism, one vision, one would have to assume in light of, say, the controversy concerning the sequence of the parashiot and tefillin, that either Rashi or Rabbein Otam had never fulfilled the mitzvah. In other words, if you accept that there's one truth in halakha, it means Rashi said about his grandson, Hazid never fulfilled tefillin. Rabbeinu Tam said, Jiddo, Zaidi never wore tefillin. Really? As says Rabbi Lichtenstein, there's something almost morally compelling over here to say, although this is my operative direction, although this is what I do, it doesn't mean that you are doing it wrong. How could you not be doing it wrong? Yeah, I have a different order of parashiot and tefillin. There is room and there is this unique and almost 
out of the norm perspective when it comes to halakha, halakha is not governed by a single truth. Halakha is governed by a Elohim Hayim being multiple, being multivaried, being multi-optional. Um, he furthermore suggests, he says, a well-known mahluk between Rabbi Yehuda and Rabbi Shimon. These are just examples of Rabbi Lichtenstein. It's a question of davar she'eno mitkaven. On Shabbat, for example, the classic example in the Gemara, we learned it recently in Masech Betza, is if you're dragging a bench out on, on a field and you make, as a result of dragging the bench, a farrow in the ground. It's called melechet harisha. But I didn't intend to do so and it wasn't for sure going to take place. Was that a violation or not? It's called davar she'eno mitkaven. something I didn't in, I intended to drag. I didn't intend to make the farrow. Is that prohibited? When it comes to Shabbat, melechet mahashevet asra Torah. Says Rabbi Shimon, it's okay. You're allowed to do so. Davar she'eno mitkaven. Says Rabbi Uda, are you kidding me? Absolutely not. Whether rabbinically or biblically prohibited, it's prohibited. Says uh, Rabbi Lichtenstein, do you think that Rabbi Huda would not eat in the house of Rabbi Shimon? Do you believe, I mean his suggestion quite clearly is absolutely he would, do you believe that Rabbi Huda would say any wine that he handles, any issues that he gets involved with? He's a mehalel Shabbat b'faresiyah, he comes into my knees, he's not getting a, he's not getting an aliyah, Rabbi Shimon says, Rabbi Lichtenstein says, it's inconceivable, and not only inconceivable, the, the sourcing bears notion for us that this Elova Elo Devre Elohim Hayim, the concept, the entity, in the context of halachav, two truths, of the possibility of there being more than one truth, of multiple, again, it doesn't mean that I can or will operate by both, the, both of them. It does mean that halakha, being the word of God, halakha being driven, I should say, by the word of God, that's the best way to say it, halakha being governed in a vision, in a way, as a communal objective to tap into truth, there will be and have been different interpretations and expressions of that. And as a result, back to our issue, before we flesh it out in one or two more sources, back to our issue then, as I hear the Kiddush, Hacham Vadya Yosef suggests from the Ashkenazi, although in my mind he's holding a, a, a soda, and in my mind he's holding water, I stepped into his body for the moment, and he, in turn, is still holding water, but it's water which for him is wine, and as a result, I can tap into it. It's an amazing thing. It's not only that he's reading the words for me and he's seeing it and so I'm seeing it. It's more than that. That beverage in his hand, which is, by definition, for me, Shehakol, I'm able to say through him, Bore Prihagefin. You see, there are other examples for this concept, and again, just without fully articulating, we've talked about them in the past. There is, a, in terms of expressing it, Ritva in his commentary to Masechet Eruvin, in source number 10, he cites from Hachmeh Hasarfatim, he's quotes from the French rabbis, their interpretation to this concept. Again, how do you express, how do you accept this? We don't live in a world of multiple truths, generally speaking. It's hard for us to wrap our head around that per se. His suggestion is, well, the Torah was given by HaKadosh Baruch Hu. And the concept, which is often repeated in the words of the rabbis of Shivim Panim La Torah, is a very telling one. It means that Pesukim, it means words of God, it means words of Torah, were purposefully open to and given over with multiple interpretations. That means different generations will understand them differently. It means different people will interpret them differently. The Gemara does say, ultimately speaking, Halacha Kebet It means that in terms of the way that I act, but it doesn't negate the truth. It doesn't negate the essence of the other opinion. Yes, Ami. So, you know this issue of having multiple rulings that have to uh, align or be compromised with each other. In the time of Ethan and Kash, earlier, there was none of this, right? There was one rule, and if you did it wrong, you 
So it depends who you ask. Jaime asks, in the time of the Beit HaMikdash, let's go backwards and forwards. In the time of the Beit HaMikdash, I'm going to add to your question, and in the days of Mashiach, right? Now, what's going to be the reality? We're going to have one, or we're going to have multiple? Many will tell you, Harambam is quite clear there was only one. My understanding of it, and discussed it over the course of the time, there was never only one. And the Kabbalistic vision to this matter is, again, don't you know, accept it for the, for the notion, is that Moshe Rabbeinu was wearing two, wears of tif, two pairs of tefillin. That's the way Arizal says it, right. So you could chuckle at it, but understand what they're saying. They're saying that Kivyachol, Moshe heard the prophetic words from God and interpreted them in two ways, and as a result performed both of them because they were both truthful and potentially in their eyes who wore them both at once. Again, I don't need the historical facts in place. I do need what they're saying to me. They're not saying, as the often repeated notion is, we'll at one point in the future have a Sanhedrin which will settle it for once and for all. I'll tell you as well, there's a certain beauty and, 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 and liveliness to the concept that it will, in my mind, eternally be open to different interpretations. Once it becomes stagnated, once it becomes a singular interpretation to it, a whole dimension of this corpus of law, which is a living halicha system, and one in which we're developing, interpreting, understanding, or making relevant and, and, and understanding through the prism of our lives, has been lost. So it's hard for me to accept, although some will quite clearly suggest it in that fashion. Maybe you need to read them again in order to, to appreciate it more. I, I won't understand that one. Well, not really, because in other words, I understand what you're saying, it, but I, I'll tell you what it does. That, well, not per se, because this is only in the context of Berachot. But what I will tell you is, in the context of Kashrut, for example, for example, it'll open the type of possibility. I'm not, I'm not giving specifics on purpose. But let's say I have, based on my tradition, my study of the sugya and so forth or whatever, I have determined that this type of food or this way of producing the food is problematic. Now, there are other opinions, call it minority opinions, call it uh, just a different approach to the matter, who maintain that it's okay, and I'm in a circumstance, a situation where difficult for me to avoid it. I am, uh, for argument's sake, in a relative's house, I'm at a friend's house, I'm in whatever the circumstances, I, I couldn't get around it. Is that an inappropriate situation? Go outside, jump off the roof before you eat that food, or alternatively, is it... That's where the concept in halakha of, you know, you have minority opinions and we'll lean on them. What do you mean? In a pressing situation, you're lying on the minority opinion. Minority opinion is wrong. We've gone. No, it was true. It's just what wasn't being followed. But it means it's open to be followed in circumstances, right? It also, the can of worms goes in the opposite direction, depending on your personality. If you're a personality who says, well, if there's truth to all of this, well, then I better be following all of it. No, I'm going the opposite direction. Better be following all of it. Then you understand, again, it gives a certain layer of depth to an, an, a, an approach in which there are stringencies upon stringencies. If I can't negate any of these opinions, it's true the Gemara says, so go like Betilel, pick one of them. Oh, but I am um, I, I, God-fearing and I want to expand it. It, 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 lends, it lends credence to that as well. I'll just conclude with this in this, in this way and then wrap it all up together. The Mishnah Masechet Eduyot has this following statement, questions, why is it that when we have Mishnayot, 
Shiliot. Why is it when you have statements of rabbis of old, they mention not only the majority opinion, but the minority opinion as well. If the operative opinion is the majority of one, cut out every Beit Shammai from the Talmud. Just mention Beit Hillel all the time. Says the, says the uh, Mishnah here in Masechet Eduyot, Perek Alf Mishnah He, Shem Yireh Beitin et Divrei Hayachid v'yismoch alav, She'en Beitin yachol levatel Divrei Beitin Havero, Ad she'e gadol mimeno bechokmah u'minyan. The interpretation to this Mishnah of Rash Mishant goes as follows. It will be, and may happen, and uh, he assures us will happen, that although in today's day and age, or 2,000 years ago, the operative approach, the vision of the Chachmeh Hador, of the individuals who are determining law, the judges, the lawmakers, etc., is like that opinion over the other opinion. That's the majority opinion. In the future, life context, interpretations will develop. It's the way it works. We now have that other opinion recorded. It now triggers us in the future and we now say, we now have the majority following that opinion. How could that be? I ask you again. If the majority opinion is the true opinion, if we're determining halakha as a singular truth, knock it out, excise it, take it out of the record. It shouldn't, take it off, talk to the stenographer and take it off of any record that never was mentioned. The suggestion of Rash Mishan, as much as we're discussing throughout this class, is halakha has never been and never should be that singular, that monistic in terms of its nature. It needs to and will always, both because of its nature and because of the way it'll be appreciated and followed by others, be open to different interpretations and expressions over the course of time. So I bring you back and wrap it all up together to the issue, the narrow issue we addressed, and how this then broadened our horizon in terms of appreciating this law, again, in I'll go backwards. We've discussed in the past this sort of concept, this sort of notion of multiple truths in halakha. We've teased it out, we've understood it from different vantage points. Maybe never as directed in terms of halakha as we did today, uh, but we, as a result, uh, what, I, my, what my vision, what my uh, suggestion was to, first and foremost, set forth for you an autobiographical note in terms of my uh, past, in terms of wine. Secondly, to get the uh, crowds going in terms of understanding wine and getting back to me and telling me that it was all wrong in terms of the reality, etc. But beyond that, to appreciate, well, what, what really is at stake over here? We're dealing with two separate visions for how to define wine. For me, this is not wine. For you, it is wine. And nonetheless, through the technical legwork of halakha, I can hear the kiddush from you and fulfill bore prihagef. But it's not wine. But it is wine. But it's not wine. But you say it is wine. But you're wrong. No. That's for you and that's for me. And as a result, in this context, we can link up. It means, ironically, this truths of halakha will not only in pressing situations, not only for those possessed to uh, be stringent on all, in other circumstances, in intermingling of communities, of minhagim, which come together in life as it expresses itself through the uh, commingling of different perspectives and visions, that respect of sorts, that moralistic respect, will in turn have normative, will have practical ramifications such as this. Baruch Adonai Le'olam. Amen, amen.